misunderstandings, misinterpretations, nuance, confusion. Our world can often be difficult to understand. Things are multifaceted and complicated. Gray areas and blurred lines often lead us to anxiety and stress, not knowing what to believe or what to do. And why is that the case? Well, I think it's because we know that extremes exist. They exist in our lives, and it's because we hear those extremes through the words of our God as he speaks to us in pairs of opposites many times in Scripture. Have you heard any of these before? Right? Wrong? Good? Evil? Life? Death? For us? Against us? Yes? No? Righteous? Unrighteous? Obey? Disobey? Blessings? Curses? Diametrically opposed terms are ingrained in the very fabric of creation. Can you remember back to Genesis chapter 1? That's where we started this whole sermon series. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, that we see that through creation, darkness was covering the surface of the deep until God called for light. He calls for light, and then there was light. As we continue this sermon series of anticipating the king today, we're going to see the contrast of darkness with light. So let's turn over to Isaiah chapter 9, where we're going to see what God has declared around 700 BC. Hopefully you've been with us through this whole series where we've looked at the Old Testament's anticipation of a king who would deal in righteousness and justice. But just in case you haven't been with us this whole time, please allow me to do a quick recap hitting some of those highlights. The first thing that we saw, we already talked about it, in creation. We saw in Genesis chapter 1 how God created the whole world and he crowned that creation with man, with mankind. Humans are the crown of God's creation, and they were meant to rule over the rest of creation like God, being his representative here on the earth. After that sermon, we saw that the first man and woman failed in this kingdom mandate to rule over the earth when they disobeyed God and instead listened to one of his other creatures, the serpent. But that disobedience came with an important prophecy about the future. See that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. As God curses the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Sin had tainted all of creation and caused a separation between God and sinful man. But God had promised that that would not always be the case. Instead, an offspring of the woman, her seed, as it says in Hebrew, would defeat the tempter forever while being wounded himself. From that point on, God keeps specifying this promise and narrowing the focus to the one specific family through whom this promised seed would come. As we look at these, I'd like to make sure we understand the time periods for each of these promises. We first saw God make an unconditional covenant with Abram, whose name would later be changed to Abraham. God had chosen this one man out of all the families of the earth to give this man a specific piece of land along the Fertile Crescent, to have many physical descendants, and to be the mediator of the blessing to all the families of the earth. 
When you think about the promises that God makes to Abraham, I want you to have in mind the round number of approximately 2000 BC. That's approximately when God made these promises to Abraham. Okay, 2000 BC. Moving on from there, we see that God continues tracing the promises of the land, seed, and blessing through Isaac, and then Jacob, who's renamed Israel, and finally to Judah, after he and his brothers had all moved to Egypt to escape a famine. That's at the, end of, of, at the end of Genesis. We see that in Genesis chapter 49. When the book of Exodus then opens up, we see the descendants of Israel are no longer welcomed guests in Egypt, but instead are slaves until God intervenes by using a chosen man named Moses. God then multiplies his signs and wonders and great acts of judgment in the land of Egypt to bring the Israelites back to the promised land, making them into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation at Mount Sinai along the way. When they are finally ready to enter the promised land, we're about at the year 1400 BC. Several centuries have passed since that first promise of God, but here we are around 1400 BC. Israel does go into the land of Canaan, and they take most of the land that God had promised to them and to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they do not follow completely. So for the next 300 plus years, they have a thorn in their sides from all the surrounding idolatrous nations throughout the period of the judges, where there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. After realizing their need for the king, that's what the period of the judges is about, Israel asks for a king, but they ask for a king like all the other nations have a king. And so the Lord gives them Saul. And Saul does not follow the Lord either, he turns from the Lord, and so the Lord shows them the need for a righteous king. A righteous king who will follow the Lord. And he chooses David around the year 1000 BC. You see how this time clock is moving forward? We see all of these promises, and God is continuing to use them. He chooses David, and as David reigns as king, he wanted to build a, a, a house for Yahweh, a permanent house in Jerusalem where he could reign as king. But God instead says that he will build David a permanent house. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7. God will build him a permanent house or a dynasty where one of his offspring would reign on the Davidic throne forever. This leads David to then prepare for worship in the temple that his son Solomon would build. And that includes the book of Psalms where we've been the last four weeks in this series. We've been looking at specifically four messianic psalms about this anointed one or messiah that would be the Davidic king, the ultimate Davidic king that would reign forever. After David is gone, Solomon does build the temple, but he eventually turns from the Lord, and so does his son Rehoboam, as he rules foolishly, and the kingdom is divided for several hundred years as the people in both the north and the south turn to idolatry and away from God. But God's promises are not forgotten. They are not voided. Centuries after the specific promise to David about the anointed one, or Messiah, we see God sending the prophet Isaiah to the kings of Israel and Judah to warn them of coming judgment and remind them that he will not let his promises stay undone. That's where we pick it up today, roughly around the year 700 B.C. Think about the time span between these promises. Here's a nation in the United States each gap in between those different people is larger than the, gap, than the time that we have been a country. It's pretty amazing to see how God has done this 
through time. But at this point in time, as we open up to Isaiah chapter 9, God has been pointing out the futility of the idols that the people are serving. They are futile and unable to save. God sends the curses to Judah because they have not been following the law that Moses had delivered at Mount Sinai. And now, foreign armies are coming up against them. Syria and Israel come against Jerusalem to wipe it off the face of the earth. But God is not done with that place yet, and so he intervenes. Even as Ahaz continues in his idol worship and refuses to repent or listen to the Lord through the mouth of Isaiah, God promises that he will save Jerusalem for his own purposes. God gives the memorable promise of Emmanuel, God with us, claiming that he is with Judah and will fight for Judah. He will save Jerusalem. Even though they do not follow him, he will fulfill his promises. And that includes what we're going to see today, this glorious birth. Let's dive in now to our passage for this morning in Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 2. This is what it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. The people here living in their sin, uh, they are living in their sin and they are enjoying it. But as sin always does, it comes with its consequences. This darkness that we see here is crippling. It is debilitating to them. It has the only possible outcome of destruction. But these wicked and unrepentant people living throughout the promised land will see a great light. If you jump back to the previous chapter, uh, God tells Isaiah that Israel and Syria will be routed by another nation, Assyria. And in the latter time, as it says in chapter 9, verse 1, or what the Hebrew has as the last verse of chapter 8, it says this latter time is the time period where this will happen. This is where we get our time period, our timetable for when these events will happen in our passage today. It will be this latter time, or as the Bible calls it other places, the latter days. It won't be in 700 BC, but in the latter time where the great light will be shown in the promised land. So is this something that we're still waiting for today? The answer is no. I don't have to guess about this because the Apostle Matthew tells us. The Apostle Matthew in his gospel account about Jesus Christ identifies this prophecy as already being fulfilled. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, as Jesus moves away from Jerusalem, where he had been baptizing with John the baptizer, he moves away from Jerusalem to start his public ministry up in Galilee, up north. And that is when Matthew points out that Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled. He quotes there from verse 2. That's what Matthew says. Jesus, this one who started his ministry and went up to Galilee to do this ministry, is the great light that we see here in verse 2. This should be no surprise if you're familiar with any of the rest of the New Testament, as many more times Jesus is compared to light. You can see that, for example, in John chapter 1, as John is talking about the pre-existence of Jesus before the incarnation being both God and with God before creation. John says there in John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, In him, speaking of Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
Jesus claims the same thing about himself later on in the Gospel account of John, saying in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Apostle Paul as well picks up the same motif in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 as he says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So right away here in our passage, we see that the Bible calls the latter time, or in other places, the latter days, included the first coming of Jesus, but has not yet been concluded in our day. We're not to the end of days quite yet. More is yet to come in our time period today. Nevertheless, the great light has already come, and God will continue to fill the things that he has promised. We see that sentiment as we continue in Isaiah chapter 9. Look now at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. First, God is given credit for multiplying the nation. God had promised this multiplication through Abraham, saying that his offspring would be like the number of the dust of the earth in Genesis 13, like the stars of the sky in Genesis 15, and like the sand on the seashore in Genesis 22. And he had not failed to do this. He had multiplied the people greatly. We saw that in the book of Exodus, as the people greatly multiplied in Egypt, and as they come out toward the promised land, Moses counts them in the book of Numbers, where we know that there are more than 600,000 fighting men of Israel, meaning that there are likely more than 2 million total people. 2 million total people of Israel at that time. And because of God fulfilling that part of the promise, this offspring that would be great and many for Abraham, the people had hope that God would fulfill the rest of those promises as well, namely the land that they were going to and the blessing that would go to all the families of the earth. Here in verse 3, we see that God keeps his word and he makes Jerusalem rejoice as he does so. In Isaiah chapter 8, God promises that these enemies of Judah, Israel, and Syria, they would come and uh, attack Jerusalem, but they would be divided up as spoil to the nation Assyria. And here, God says again that the people would recognize what he has done. He would throw off their yoke and their oppressing tools that they had been using over the people of Judah like he did, what it says in verse 4, on the day of Midian. But what is this day of Midian? What is this oppressing being gone? What is that compared to? What is that victory compared to? We didn't cover this event specifically in this sermon series, but hopefully you've heard about a man in the time period of the judges named Gideon. This man was small, weak, and scared, threshing wheat in the secret wine press when God comes to him declaring that he would be a mighty warrior and win a great victory for Israel. As the story progresses through Judges chapter 6 through 8, 
Gideon follows Yahweh's battle plans, leading to a hugely improbable and seemingly impossible victory over the raiders of Midian. God is saying here in Isaiah, just like he had ruined the oppressing nation of Midian in the period of the judges, so he would provide escape and salvation again for his people in Jerusalem. And as he does so, in verse 5, we see that he says, everything used in battle will be destroyed in the fire, ending all wars. This is a good cross-reference that you could have here. would be Ezekiel 39. Ezekiel 39 is where God talks about turning the weapons of war into farming equipment, where there will be peace marking the time where there is no need for weapons. Ezekiel 39 talks about this as a future thing to him, but it's also future to us. So we see the victory and the end of oppression for God's people foretold about in the future. But what is the key to all of this for the people in Jerusalem? Who would be the one leading the charge of battle? Look here at the beginning of verse 6, and we'll see it. Maybe you've already memorized this verse. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. We'll pause right there for a minute. We're talking about the context of war. This is the context of the inhabitants of Jerusalem being oppressed by a foreign and wicked nation, but God overthrowing them. And how would this happen? Through the giving of a child? Yes, that's the main point of this passage. It's that the birth of this child would mean victory. The glorious birth would bring salvation. Let's keep going there in verse 6 and look at the whole verse. I'll ask you to look up here on the screen this time instead of at the translation that you have in your hands, and I'll explain as we go. But look here on the screen. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, I want to draw your attention to a few things here that are in the grammar. I know no one likes grammar, but it's really important here. Okay? Did you notice the shift in the verbs? In those first two lines in the Hebrew, we have what are called perfect verbs, meaning that this is describing something as it's already happened. We know in the context we're talking about the latter time, uh, these latter days where this will happen, so it's still future. And so in the context of future prophecy, many scholars and commentators will say this is a use of the prophetic perfect, the prophetic perfect, because even though it talks about something that is yet to happen in the future, because God has said it, it will happen. There's no doubt whether it will happen or not. It's already as good as done, because God has said it. That's what we have there in those first two lines, these perfect verbs saying, this is as good as done. Also, the word order in those two lines is very important. It's unique in the Hebrew. In our English, we typically start our sentences with the subject. We start with the subject, then say the verb that the subject is doing, and then we have the rest of the sentence. In Hebrew, however, the typical word order is you start with the verb, then you go to the subject, and then you have the rest of the sentence. That is, unless something is being highlighted. Unless something is being emphasized. And spoiler alert, something is being emphasized here. 
In both of those first two lines, the subject comes at the beginning of the sentence. The subject is what is highlighted. The prominence is on the noun. The appearance of the child, this son, is what God is emphasizing through the grammar of this verse. This child is the answer. He is the one to bring victory. The main point being made here is that a special child would be born. That's the focus. Not even on what he would do, but that he would be born. After those two parallel lines, notice how the ESV here, what we have on the screen, how that translates the rest of the verse using the future tense form verbs. This is why I wanted you to look at the ESV here. It's not an entirely unique English translation. Uh, The King James and the New King James, as well as the NIV, also show this uh, distinction of the verbs, but not all uh, translations in English do. And so I wanted to show you here the distinctiveness of the Hebrew verbs. In the beginning of the verse, the perfect verbs are used for this prophecy. Then at the end, with the natural default word order, vav consecutive imperfect verbs, a fancy way of saying different verbs, are used to show what will happen after the glorious birth. After the glorious birth, we see that he will have the government on his shoulder, and he will be given different names. They don't all happen at once. That's what the grammar is pointing out here. In essence, the highlight and main point of this passage is the birth of the child. That is what will bring peace in the end of oppression. The birth is the main point here. But the rest is still important, so let's look at it. The government shall be upon his shoulder. The government shall be upon his shoulder. I know we often get fed up about our own government. Uh, We do here in America, I know, and I know they do. All over the earth, all over the world, we get upset with our government. We tend to think of government as being corrupt and hurtful, and they often are. But the government often seems to look after its own interests and not to the interests of those who they are governing. But I'm here to remind you today that government is not intrinsically evil. Government is not intrinsically wicked. The right government structure on the shoulder of the right individual will bring peace and prospering to all people. But that's the important point. It has to be the right individual. So who is the right individual that will put an end to oppression and war? Isaiah identifies him here as the child that will be born in the latter time and then goes on to describe his name. In the Hebrew culture, name, the idea of a name is the all-encompassing description of one's character. The all-encompassing description of one's character. It describes who this person is. And in this case, this child will be called by some really important titles. First, he'll be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. This carries with it the understanding of supernatural wisdom that he will impart upon people. It won't just be someone ordinary, but he will be the one of wonder. That's how you could render that in Hebrew, the one of wonder. His counsel would be extraordinary and miraculous. But that's not all. That's just the first title. He would also be called 
mighty God. This could also be translated warrior God. But wait a second. We're talking about a child here. How could a child be called God? How can God be a child? To Isaiah's audience, it would be incredibly hard and difficult to understand or make any sense of this. But for us, having the benefit of living after this child has been born, we understand it. We live after this great light has shone in the darkness in Galilee. We know that God took on flesh to be born of a woman in the little town of Bethlehem. This child, the seed of the woman conceived of by the Holy Spirit, was fully God and fully man. That is why this son could be called Mighty God. Because he is God. Do you see that? Next, the child is called Everlasting Father. This is similar to the name Mighty God. It carries with it a lot of the same weight. But as the everlasting or eternal character of this individual is keyed in on in this title. Again, for us living after Jesus' earthly ministry and being able to read John's gospel account of all that Jesus said and did, we understand that this child did not have his beginning at his birth like you and I. Instead, this one was God and was with God in the beginning. Or as Jesus puts it in John chapter 8, verse 58, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus identifies himself as the great I am, Yahweh, the creator God at the beginning. And we know that this Messiah in the line of David will also have no end. He will rule on the throne of David forever. More on that in just a little bit, but we see that this child is the everlasting one, the eternal one, with no beginning and no end. And then the last name, this last title given for this individual, is the Prince of Peace. We've seen that he will be the one to bring peace and to end oppression and war, but I think this title is doing a little bit more than just that. This title reminds the Hebrew hearer of the name of the king after David. Shalomo, in Hebrew, coming from the word shalom, meaning peace, is how we know Solomon. This one who David was told would build the temple, giving proof that God would fulfill the Davidic covenant. Solomon expanded his borders and was not oppressed during his life or his rule in Jerusalem. But he was not the Messiah. He did reign, but his reign did end. And he did not always follow the Lord. This child would be similar to Shalomo, Solomon, but yet very different and very distinct. Let's keep reading there in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. It says this, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Everything's brought together here in this verse. This child's government will be ultimate. It will not be limited. His peace will not be limited either. He will bring peace to all from, did you catch it? David's throne. This explicit mention of the throne of David ought to remind you of the Davidic covenant. Again, 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
And if there was any doubt about who this individual was through the passage, now that doubt is gone. This is clearly the Messiah, the fulfillment of God's promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the son of David who would rule on the throne of David forever. And how will he do it? He will establish it and uphold the kingdom with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Do the words justice and righteousness do anything for you? Do they ring a bell? I hope so. As we introduce the sermon series every week, we talk about how the promised king will one day deal with justice and righteousness. Those characteristics of his rule always accompany the description of the anticipated king. It's what separates him from all the other kings in David's line. None of them ruled with justice and righteousness. But the Messiah who comes from David's line would. All the other kings had sinned and fallen short of the standard that God had had for them. None of them followed God perfectly or brought true peace to their people. Only this Messiah would be able to do it. Only the one who would rule forever could do it. Only this child, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace, only he could do it. But let's think about where we are right now. As we dove into the passage, we talked about how the great light had shone into the darkness. We identified that with help from the Apostle Matthew saying, that was Jesus, the great light has shone in Galilee. We saw that in Matthew 4. And we talked about how this light was also called this child and the son who would be born. We've seen that already as well. We've seen this God born in the, in the flesh, the fully God, fully man individual that we know as Jesus. That identification is clear. It's unmistakable. It must be Jesus. There is no other. But have we seen this description of the government yet today? Has that come to pass? Have wars stopped and peace come to all men? Is he currently sitting on the throne of David in Zion as David had done? To all of these questions, the answer must be no. We haven't seen that happen. So what does that mean? Where does that leave us with how God deals in extremes like darkness and light? Fulfilled or unfulfilled? Where does that leave us? Well, I'd urge you to include one more word to what I've just said. We haven't seen this government yet. We haven't seen this government yet. God said it, so it will not remain undone. Partial fulfillment is not enough. God has not changed his mind. He has not reshaped his words. What he has said, he has said. And what he has said, he will do. It's just that simple. Remember back to what we talked about in the grammar of verse 6? I think that's important here as we talk about this. The highlighting of the word order about the child being born and then later on, as the verbs are changed to show that the government would be upon his shoulder in the future, that should not be lost. That distinctiveness, that distinctiveness should be remembered by us. There are two distinct things happening here. The child has been born, and we have identified him as the king who is to come, but the government is not yet 
upon his shoulder today. Instead, that will happen in the future. Now, that's not unique in Scripture. God often proves his future prophecies with a miracle or a partial fulfillment first. A couple examples for this. One of them is found in Numbers chapter 14. As the people of Israel have been sent into the land of Canaan to spy out the land, to see how they're going to conquer it, the spies come back and 10 of the 12 spies convince the people it's not going to be worth it. We should not follow the Lord. Let's get a new leader and go back to Egypt. They rebel against God. They rebel against Moses. And they say they're not going to go in to conquer the promised land. And so God says that whole generation will die in the wilderness. That whole generation would die in the wilderness. And to prove that this will happen, immediately those ten rebellious spies fall dead. Right in front of the congregation, immediately those ten spies fall dead. It's to prove that God will fulfill the rest of it, that the rest of the generation shall all die in the wilderness. Another example would be with Jacob, as he's running away from Esau, running away for fear of his life. He's about to leave the promised land, but he stops for the night in Bethel. And God appears to him in a dream there. Look at what he says to Jacob there in Genesis chapter 28, starting in verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it, talking about the ladder going into heaven with the angels angels ascending and descending. He stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Did you see it? We have the repetition of what God had promised to Abraham now coming to Jacob. It's going to be carried out through Jacob. That is the promise here with the offspring like the dust of the earth and being the mediator of a blessing to all the families of the earth. But how is Jacob to trust that God will do all of this? It's the immediate protection and bringing back to the promised land. When Jacob does come back to Bethel safely, or when Israel does see the wicked spies immediately, what's their reaction? It's not to say, oh, that must be what God meant. No, the reaction is, well, here's part of it. The rest must be yet to come. They don't assume that it's already all been accomplished. They don't claim that God didn't really mean what he said. They don't think that he's reinterpreted the terms of the promise. Of course not. Instead, they see these as proofs that God will continue to fulfill his promises completely. So when we see Jesus as the great light that is shown in the the darkness to the Israelites, and this promised child who has already been born in our past, how do we react? Do we reinterpret all the kingdom prophecies to a spiritual realm? Do we claim that all must already be accomplished in a nuanced manner? Do we negate the prophecies of the Messiah being an earthly king on the throne of David in Zion, ruling with a rod of iron and wiping out his enemies with the word of his mouth? We really shouldn't. Instead, because we have seen God start to fulfill the promises from Isaiah chapter 9, 
We should have more confidence and assurance that the rest will happen in due time as well. Let me show you that in the text. Look here at the end of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. To finish off this section of prophecy, God makes a very interesting statement. After telling about the unlimited power and peace of the Davidic king's kingdom, he reassures the reader by saying, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. How can we be sure that all of these things will happen? Two reasons. God said it. God will do it. Two reasons. It's that simple. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is not just predicting the future here. He does reveal the future, but he's also going to make it happen. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Lord of hosts. Yahweh of hosts. This is a title that's used throughout Scripture to emphasize the power and the strength of God. His ability. He is the all-powerful one. He is the one who has command over the armies of heaven. That's what hosts means there. It's not talking about people who ask you over their house for dinner. It's not that kind of host. No, it's talking about the host, the armies that God is in charge of. It could be translated here, Yahweh of armies. Tzavaoth, as it's talked about in the Hebrew. That's the designation that David himself uses against Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 45. This is what David says. He says to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Why did David have the confidence he did when fighting this giant? Because of the power of his God. David's God would make all the difference. He was much more powerful than anything that Goliath could bring forward. And why should we believe that the descendant of David would have an unending government over the world in Jerusalem marked with justice and righteousness and unfathomable peace? It's because of the same reason. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. As the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, he says this starting in verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus came once. He came to be the light in the darkness. He came to the earth 2,000 years ago to bring salvation through his name. He innocently went to the cross to die in our place, being our substitution, taking on himself the punishment that we deserve. He was dead and was buried, but that wasn't the end of the story. On the third day, he rose again, conquering death and proving that he can truly offer eternal life to all those who believe on his name. When he arose, he appeared to many and he taught about the kingdom of God, but he didn't set it up. Instead, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, as we saw last week in Psalm 110, awaiting the time where all the enemies would be placed under his feet. 
when that finally happens, he will come back. And that is when God will fulfill all things. He will not let any word of his be left undone. Jesus will break the enemies with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, as we saw predicted in Psalm 2. He will rule over all nations, and in him, people of all nations will be blessed, fulfilling the covenant that we saw that God made with Abraham and Jacob. We saw that prophecy two weeks ago in Psalm 72. Jesus will shatter kings on the day of his wrath, according to Psalm 110. He will execute judgment and leave in his wake, corpses filling the earth. So much has already happened, but not all is yet fulfilled. Our time is running short, and in the end, all will be accomplished. When Jesus comes back, which side are you going to be on? There's two extremes. There's no middle ground. There's no nuance to it at all. He's coming back, and when he does, you can see from these different psalms that I've just run through that he is coming back differently than the first time. He's coming back for judgment and the destruction of his enemies. So where do you stand? Have you believed in the Son? Have you trusted in the one who paid for your sin? Have you rejoiced in the glorious birth of the child who has been given to us. I sure hope so. If not, know where you are and take warning. God promises judgment for all sin when Jesus returns. And that judgment means death and separation from God forever in the the eternal lake of fire. It means real and literal punishment in the lake of fire if you have not been washed by the blood of the Lamb. There's only two options. There's only these two extremes. It isn't a very nuanced conversation that we, that we can misinterpret. God makes it clear. It's eternal life or eternal punishment. I urge you today, take notice of what God has done. Take it as the proof that He will accomplish all things. He will do all that He has promised. Make sure you're ready. Trust in Jesus today because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time that we have together to look into your word. Lord, we're so thankful that uh, we can trust what you have said, how you not only know the future, but you do the future. In the zeal of the Lord of hosts, this all-powerful God that we serve, will do this. There will be judgment. There will be a government on Jesus' shoulders. There will be everlasting peace, but only for those who have trusted in Him as Savior. Only those who have asked for forgiveness in His name. Lord, I pray that that would be all of us in this room today, that we would all have the understanding of our sin and how that separates us from you. Lord, I pray that we would understand the gravity of that situation and how we must put that upon Jesus. He has paid the price. He has offered forgiveness. Lord, I pray that we would believe, that we would repent of our sins and believe in what he has done so that we might be saved. Lord, we know that you're going to fulfill all things. You have not done it yet. 
And we eagerly await for Jesus to return so that all will be accomplished and we can be with you forever. Lord, we're so thankful for your word, what you've declared through it. I pray that you continue to use your word in our lives and that you would shape us by it. Help us to see what will happen in the future and help us to understand our responsibility to react because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do all that he has said. You will not be stopped. Lord, I pray that we would all submit to you and that we would seek you this day. We love you and we thank you for this time in your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.